Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we feature multi-award-winning Chicago sportscaster Peggy Kaczynski. I knew that I should stay in Chicago. I knew that I was very lucky and fortunate that uh, you know I was accepted in Chicago. Um, I loved working in Chicago. Uh, I, I get Chicago. I understand the audience, and that's the one thing I always try to tell people: you know, understand your audience and what what they want and what they're looking for. Retired? Huh, not really. Let's call it a needed break for the longtime sportscaster who made her mark on Channel 5 here after having to convince a few doubters she had what it takes. A dozen Emmys? Settle that. Three kids, a crossroads, and a very creative podcast later, Peggy is still churning out quality stuff and oh, did I mention food? So, Peggy Kaczynski, tell me a story I don't know. Oh, George, I cry when Michelin starred chefs cook for me. <laughs> I know it, this is crazy. Uh, I'm a I'm a foodie wannabe on the scale of foodies. I'm somewhere around a two and a half out of five. That's that's what I would say. Um, when we travel, my husband and I, when we travel uh, around the world, our dinners revolve around the Michelin Guide. Um, I spent a New Year's Eve dinner at Charlie Trotter's years ago, and the table next to us was um, this lovely couple that we just started talking to them because it was my husband and I and this other couple right next to us. And so we started chatting and midway through our conversation this New Year's Eve, we were having so much fun. We realized that their son plays hockey. And I said, I'm thinking, you know, peewee hockey. And I said, oh, you know, what level? And they said, well, you know, professionally. And I said, is he with the Wolves? Is he a minor league player? And they said, no, the Blackhawks. And I said, who's your son? Adam Burrish. You can't describe when you hold that cup over your head, the feeling that you get is it's undescribable. It's better than any vacation I've been on, better than anything cool I've ever done, better than kissing the prettiest girl in school. That, that, was, that was as good as it gets. So to this day, <laughs> We are still friends with Helen and Mark Burrish, who we spent this New Year's Eve with 
wee hours of the morning. We were the last ones to close Trotters that night. The staff was bringing us extra wine as the four of us sat there laughing and having a great time. Um, we collect menus and pictures of uh, great chefs, and I have them framed in my kitchen. You know, I think the bottom line to all of this <sighs> is you really like food. I, I like <laughs> food, but you know what, George? I appreciate their artistic talent and vision more so. I mean, I just truly appreciate their art, their vision, and their skill because, you know, it's like, for some people, it's like meeting athletes. For me, it's meeting world-renowned chefs. I, I understand this. I'm, I can't say that I'm on your level. I've been to some of these places. I've been to some places outside the country that are considered the top-notch restaurants. And I think even my wife is more of a critic than I am. I get the picture. Would you say you're a food snob? I'm a wine snob. I fully admit to being a wine snob. <laughs> and do you know what I did during the pandemic? I took the level one wine course with WeSet. So level one, you know, if you were going to be a sommelier, uh, level one is the introduction. Level two is you learn more about regions and terras. And level three is truly the sommeliers that you will meet uh, in restaurants. So I took the level one wine class. Uh, I'm a wine snob. And my goal was to stop being so snobbish and picky about the wine I drink and to open up my world a little bit more. So I took the level one. You know, you made one of those life-altering decisions a few years ago, which was, in essence, way work and family, and the pendulum swung to family. So tell me a story I don't know. How tough that was, how tough it's been, and when the hell are you making a splashy comeback? The decision to leave wasn't tough because... I was mailing it in with my job. And I had always told people I could never stand when I was working in radio, I hated those people that all they did was complain. They didn't make enough money and blah, 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 blah. And I'd always say, if you don't like it, get out. You're like, this is the industry, this is the business. If you don't like it, get out. And I found myself in television starting to complain and it was very frustrating for me. I started mailing it in. But when I really self-reflected, I looked back and it was the life-altering moment really came when I lost my sister. Um, a couple of years prior to that in 2015, uh, when she was battling her 11th year of breast cancer and my best friend, my biggest supporter, um, I took time out to... Uh, take care of her. And I have you know, nine brothers and sisters. This was very, very difficult. And I would, I had the full support of my, uh, my, my, my family, I was going to say at work, um, my bosses, um, my sports director, Jeff Glick, and my news director, vice president of news, Frank Whitaker at Channel 5. Uh, they totally understood. They allowed me to go to Bulls practice or Bears practice, whichever I was covering that day. I would cover practice really quickly. I would write my stories. I would voice over my stories, hand it over to my cameraman, Matt Byrne. And then I would drive to my sister's house in Highland Park and I would take care of her. And this went on for seven months before she died. And when she died, I realized I had like, what am I doing? Like, mm. it makes you reflect when you have any kind of life-changing moment. It really made me reflect. I had 
covered um, three Bulls championships in the Jordan era. I covered three Blackhawks Stanley Cups, which were amazing in our modern era. Good morning from TD Garden in Boston, where finally everybody has left the ice after a crazy celebration. The Blackhawks winning their second Stanley Cup in four years, the fifth in franchise history. And they did it late in the third. I covered the, the Bears lost in the Super Bowl with Lovey Smith and Erlacher and those guys. Uh, I covered the White Sox uh, during their, their World Series. But I had really been thinking about it for about two years that what else am I waiting for? Uh, I've missed Christmases and Thanksgivings and uh, t-ball games and, and basketball and dance shows. I had one once during the, the Blackhawks Stanley Cup run in Tampa, I left after morning um, skate around, flew back to Chicago to catch my daughter's dance recital. And I think she was seven years old, um, got a flat tire, uh, got someone to help me fix the flat tire, got to the dance recital, turned around and left as soon as she was finished, left flowers with my husband to give to her, ran out the back door, uh, made my way back to the airport and walked back into the arena in Tampa during the national anthem. I mean, these were the things I was doing to try to do everything. And it took a toll. I was emotionally spent. I was done. I was tired. You know, I made, I made a, a critical, critical error on the air uh, that was um, just made fun of everywhere. Um, uh, the, the famous question to Patrick Kane, have you ever mm -hmm. Uh, um, you know, a game winner in overtime before, you know, and I, I was at the Stanley Cup, you know, when he did it. So what what, what was that like? Because I know Barry Rosner wrote about that. And we've uh, all been we've all been in this position more than once where we make that error. You're interviewing somebody and you know, you've blown it and yeah. you can see it in the face of the person you're talking to. And your peripheral vision is such that everybody knows you've done yeah. this and yep. they're sitting there going, We'll be happy to give you the shovel. You try to dig yourself out. Yeah. This one was a little different. Yeah, this was hard. Um, I kind of shouted it from the back of the scrum, kind of sarcastically trying to get a, you know, I guess in my head, I thought I was saying something else. And I guess I didn't really realize what I had said. And I could tell by the way he looked out of the corner of his eye to see who asked that question. And when he saw it was me and I'm just kind of, eh, you know, being silly, stupid, um, he didn't call me out on it. Um, but I could see the smirks from some of the Blackhawk beat writers. I was I was pissed. I, I was like, why are they all looking at me like that? Some of the national writers. And when I drove home that night after work, after the game, everything, 1115 at night, I heard a national radio show. And they were having so much fun. What an idiot. This, what a bimbo, what a dingbat. She must not know hockey. Um, this is why you don't let anybody in the, in the dressing room to ask questions. Oh, brother. I was driving home and I just was so stunned. I, it was like, it hit me what I had done. And I thought, oh my God. Now, you know, there's a lot of guys who would not give two craps at all about that. They'd be like, ah, I made a mistake, you know, eh, whatever. But I think sometimes with women, we are so ultra concerned about being right, you know, in, in the sports industry and not making a mistake and that um, I couldn't sleep that night. I got home, 
And one of my son that I actually do my podcast with now, my son said to me, um, mom, you're all over Twitter. I said, oh no, oh no. And you know, my kids were like 12 and 13 and it was heartbreaking. Some of the comments that were being said about me and they, they were the ones who kept track of it. And they were the ones who they could tell you to this day, the names of the people who said negative things about me. And I could tell you the people who stood up for me and said, that's just not like Peggy. I don't know why she would say that, you know, but there's got to be something else going on. That's just, that's not her. Her body of work has to, you know, and I drove to St. Louis the next day. And I remember we stopped at the airport where the Blackhawks uh, leave from the private um, air, airport. Yeah. And in um, the the Blackhawks PR guy pulled me aside and he goes, hey, hey, are you OK? And I was fighting back tears, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, don't break down crying in front of the Blackhawks PR guy. And I said, uh, I'm just not myself these days. I said, you know, my sister died three weeks ago. I've been I, I thought going back to work was going to be a good thing. And I said, I just screwed up. I, he goes, don't worry. We all have your back. We know your history. We know you know, your body of work and, you know, just don't let it, it get to you. Well, I get in my car, I drive from O'Hare to St. Louis and it's all over talk radio and everybody is just, and I, I was, it was horrible. Um, I got to the hotel in St. Louis and I just cried and cried. And I think it was like all the tears of my sister, everything just kind of culminated. And I had a, a breakdown in the hotel and I called one reporter friend of mine and I, you know, he kind of just talked me off the ledge, you know, he was like, you got to let it go. You got to just let it go, let it go. And I just kind of tuned it out. And, and that led to, you know, the final decision of me being done and deciding to step away. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouthwatering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches and also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers. Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know with Peggy Kaczynski. You know, we have a, a number of things in common, and one of them is Southern Illinois University, yeah. uh, where you went, and I went back in the uh, in the 70s, and you went there in the 80s. 
So tell me a story I don't know. What changed? Oh, my gosh. Um, I started out in uh, speech communications and theater and realized fairly quickly my first semester that I just wasn't a theater person as much as I would have loved to be on stage. Um, I did stand-up comedy. There was a, a search for campus comedians that HBO was doing. I, I did it. I did it two times. And HBO was doing a search for campus comedians. And they uh, came to uh, SIU Carbondale and um, they were filming the competition and it would be on HBO and it was sponsored by Catch a Rising Star. It was an old uh, stand-up club in New York. And so I, I entered on a whim uh, and kind of a dare from friends. Um, there were actually three of us in the radio TV department that had all entered. And my, my buddy Bill finished in third place. I ended up finishing second. And when I came home and told my mom that the um, folks from HBO and from Catch a Rising Star suggested that I do stand-up comedy in Chicago and start doing open mic nights, the only woman comedian I knew at that time was Joan Rivers. And my mother looked at me and she said, over my dead body. You will not be in a nightclub, sitting at a bar, listening to these foul-mouthed men up on a stage, and you trying to make a buck. Foul-mouthed men? You just mentioned Joan Rivers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was I did. I did one day of stand-up in Carbondale uh, at one of the clubs there, and it was literally three drunks uh, <laughs> at, at two o'clock in the afternoon. And George, this is what you know. You're like. Hey, good to see everybody. I'm glad you guys were able to get off work. And you'd hear. <laughs> so that was the beginning and the end of my stand-up career. So what suddenly changed for you to determine you wanted to go in this direction when you were at SIU? I walked into my brother's apartment. One of my brothers and my sister had gone to SIU at the same time. And my brother was living in an apartment and um, uh, Lewis Park Apartments. And uh, I walked in and he and all his buddies were glued to the TV. And I was, uh, I walked in and no, no one turned around to say hello. They were all just, I'm like, what are you guys watching? They said, oh, it's this new channel called ESPN. And it's all sports all day. And when I looked at the screen, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, Gail Gardner, a woman, was co-anchoring Sports Center. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sports Center. Gail Gardner, along with Chris Berman. And both you and I have been to Boston Garden about this time of year and know exactly what that feels like. Hot. Hot, very hot, and uh, hot for the I had never seen a woman. Uh, I really was not familiar with Jeannie Morris in Chicago because really it was while I was at college when she um, really was well-known in Chicago. And I had never seen a woman doing all sports like this before. And that was kind of my aha moment. That was, you know, I had, I had uh, uh, news clippings of Bob Costas hanging on my corkboard in my room. I had never seen a woman doing sports before. So 
that's when I went back to the communications department, walked around, found the radio TV department and, um, you know, just started signing up for everything, wanting to do sports. And there was no women doing sports. I got handed, I think I did uh, women's rugby. I did the overnight shift at WIDB, the campus radio station doing sports. But I knew once I started working in the radio TV department that that was it, that that's what I wanted to do. People don't realize this. You grew up not just with one brother, you grew up with seven. So sports had to be somewhat of a prerequisite in the Kaczynski household. Well, sure. I mean, back in the 70s, it was like, you know, uh, take your brother with you, take your sister with you. You know, my, my mom um, could handle three at a time and, you know, go with your dad to work every Saturday. Uh, my dad worked as a janitor at Elmwood Park High School in Illinois. And on the weekends, um, we would go to work with him and we went and hung out at Elmwood Park High School. And while he was cleaning the floors with those big orange mops, if you remember the big dust mops, and um, he would be cleaning the floors and the classrooms and we would go hang out in the gym. And I would shoot baskets for hours upon hours in the gym. And when I was done playing basketball, um, my brothers, you know, they would also be in there, you know, they would use the indoor baseball facilities and they would all be playing baseball. Um, then I would go over to the little theater and I would watch theater practice and I would sneak behind the stage and just, I was, you know, uh, amazed with um, everything that went into to putting on a play. Um, yeah, so, you know, I really started playing sports when I was in like fourth, fifth grade intramurals. And then in sixth grade, I was uh, getting to be a pretty good basketball player. And I wanted to go try out for the basketball team at Immaculate Conception Grammar School on the Northwest side in Edison Park, Norwood Park area. And um, I went to the gym to try out. And I remember Mr. Carco uh, was the coach and the gym teacher. And he said, Peggy, this is the boys tryouts. And I said, oh, when's the girls tryouts? He said, well, that's not till next year, not until seventh grade. And I, that was 1975. And I, I couldn't believe that they didn't have a girl's team. And I went back home and we lived right across the street from the school. And I told my mom that I tried out for basketball, but Mr. Carco told me that there was no girls team. And my mom said, you go back there and you tell them that you have to try out. And I went back there and I think it's because she just wanted you know, me to be busy. <laughs> One less kid to have to worry about, you know, hanging around the house. And I went back and they were like, oh, so cute, Peggy. That's so sweet. But you think about it, that was right around Title IX. And that was, you know, my mom played basketball at Alvernia High School. She played six on six basketball, mm -hmm. you know, in the early 50s. And that was, you know, she was the athlete in our family, not my dad. It was my mom. And my mom was, you know, the oldest in her family. She went to White Sox games with her dad. She taught me how to keep score of a baseball game. Um, she was the one that came to all of our games. My dad worked all that. My dad had like three or four jobs. And if he would pop his head at a game, that was a big deal. It was like, oh my gosh, dad actually came, but he wouldn't stick around long because typically he was between jobs and he had to, to leave. It was my mom that was cheering in, you know, the stands when I finally was playing basketball, my mom and Mrs. Hosters got technicals 
in the stands <laughs> cheering and, and yelling at the refs, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, seven brothers, I just like sports was just a real natural. And then, you know, I played volleyball, 16 inch softball, and I was an all state second team basketball player in high school, um, for, you know, all Chicago and, um, for the state of Illinois. So yeah, sports was everything for me growing up. You mentioned uh, the name of Jeannie Morris earlier. She died in 2020, and we both had the pleasure of knowing her. She truly was the quintessential trailblazer when you consider her career began in the late 60s when the idea of having a woman sports writer or sportscaster was blasphemous. Yeah, really, really shocking. Um, I hope people really watched and read the stories about Jeannie after she passed. Um, I did not meet her until I was sitting on a committee for the Ring Lardner Awards in Chicago, and they wanted to honor me. And I said, I, I, I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, there were women who came before me and I just feel like you have to honor, you know, at least honor Jeannie Morris before, you know, any other woman. And so I really kind of made a push for Jeannie Morris and they ended up uh, voting and they honored her. And that was, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, she found out that I was on the committee. We had never met before and she invited me to dinner. She was going to be in Chicago and we went to dinner at Michael Jordan's restaurant and it was a getting to know you dinner. And she was, you know, she was this petite woman that had a high pitched voice that um, looked all pixie cute, 60s pixie cute, you know, and you would be very misled to think that she was this short, sweet, you know, um, woman. She was a she was a bulldog. bulldog. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. She was. And the whole time we were talking, there was no BSing her. She was kind of eyeing me up and down to see if I was BSing her, if I was just telling her what you know, I thought she wanted to hear. Um, I really respected her. The more I read and learned about her, I learned something a long, long time ago that if, if you can't appreciate the people who came before you and paved the way for you, then you're going to walk a rocky road. They wouldn't let me on the field, which is where I like to be during a football game. They wouldn't let me in the press box because no women were allowed. And I didn't have a ticket. So they said I could sit on top of the press box in the blizzard beside the game camera. That's where I was. And that wasn't much fun. But it makes for a good story. It, it, it's a good illustration of how it was back in the day. And uh, I just always respected what she did. Um, yeah, she, she deserved all of the attention and the accolades uh, that, that she got. Um, she truly, truly was the trailblazer. Absolutely. Consider this now. Do you believe you're a trailblazer? I don't think so because there were women who came before me. You know, Amy Stone was hired at Chicagoland TV before I was. I remember her, yes. Amy Stone went from, from CLTV to Channel 5 before I was at Channel 5. Um, Jill Carlson got hired by uh, Fox in Chicago after CLTV before I went to Channel 5. Um, there's, um, you know, Gail at uh, the old, you know, I want to call it NBC Sports Chicago. Gail Fisher. Um, yeah, Gail Fisher at, at the old uh, Sports Vision. Um, I think for whatever reason, 
I think the difference may have been maybe the staying power that I had. And um, I guess my style made people not forget. Anthony, you guys have talked about this all season long to go from spring training now to the World Series and say you have almost accomplished the goal. Yeah, almost doesn't cut it though. We got four more, but this is amazing. This is this place. I'm Peggy Kaczynski at Hallis Hall, where the Bears just wrapped up their first day of rookie minicamp. Mark Tressman called it First Impression Day. They had a very good first impression of first-round draft pick Kyle Fuller at cornerback. Mike Adamley's neurologist confirms he has brain trauma caused by football. First epilepsy, now CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, with a history of warning signs, anxiety, addiction, depression, divorce. I haven't been the easiest guy to be with. The guy that hired me, Mike Adams of CLTV, said to me, wow, you're really raw. You really don't have a lot of experience, but you have this Chicago thing that I feel like I'm in a bar talking sports with you. Listen, I tried getting national jobs and I was too Chicago. My accent was to Chicago. I I knew that I should stay in Chicago. I knew that I was very lucky and fortunate that, uh, you know, I was accepted in Chicago. Um, I loved working in Chicago. Uh, I I get Chicago. I understand the audience. And that's the one thing I always try to tell people, you know, understand your audience and what, what they want and what they're looking for. And then Try to educate them a little bit. Tell them one thing maybe they didn't know. If, if you can bring something to the audience that they're not getting somewhere else, then, uh, you know, they're gonna, it's going to pay off and they're going to remember you. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, Condiments, and Classic Deli Meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. It's funny how we make our mark in this industry, Peggy. You have to find a way to break down barriers, but in your case, there were a few walls in the way, and one of them was when you were trying to get a sports internship at Channel 5. Tell me a story I don't know. Oh, my gosh. How do you know about this story? Oh, man. Okay, so I was home from school, and... um, sitting in our kitchen on Odell Avenue on the Northwest side of Chicago. 
And I had to jump on the L train for my internship interview at channel five. And I was all nervous and I'm reading the, the sports pages and took the L train to the old merchandise smart, which is where channel five was at the time. And I had my interview in the sports department. So you got to pick like, what were your top three departments that you would like the internship in it? Number one, it was sports. And I walk in and it was obvious to me that the producer was annoyed at having to interview me. And um, he starts asking me questions and, um, you know, typical sports interview. And then he reaches back behind him and he takes the old Trivial Pursuit game down off the shelf. And for people who are old enough to remember, not the Trivial Pursuit on your phone, although it's similar with the app, it was a game, a card, you know, with card games and, and, and different categories, you know, history, entertainment, sports, whatever. And the orange cards were the sports cards. I remember and it well. He took the orange cards and just started asking me sports trivia that I didn't know. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't have an answer for him. And I just sat there and I felt like somebody was trying to embarrass me. And I, he, he basically was like, oh, well, okay, this interview's over, you know? And, and, and I stood up and I looked at him and I said, listen, I may not know the answers to those questions, but I sure as hell know how to find the answers. And back then it was all about doing your research and, and making sure you were never wrong. You always had to proofread your copy and everything. And I was humiliated and I left and I got on the train and I was just steaming about this. Um, I did not get the internship. And I got the internship in my second choice department, which was the programming department. And the programming department put on their talk shows. And one of the talk shows was the Warner Saunders show. And it was a public affairs show. Warner Saunders at the time was one of the sportscasters crossing over into news. And Warner and I would sit there and talk sports all the time. And I just learned so much. And I started pitching ideas for uh, talk show ideas that centered around sports. And he loved it. And he walked into the bosses and he said, listen, she knows what she's doing. We should hire her. And they ended up offering me a job as a production assistant in the Channel 5 programming department back in 1986 and whatever year this was. And um, I worked on the talk shows. Um, I did that for a couple of years uh, before I went to a Sportscasters Camp of America um, in Rensselaer, Indiana, and uh, was the only woman at the, the Sportscasters Camp. And Reggie Theus was also in the camp as a camper learning how to be a sportscaster. Was he really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we interviewed Sean Kemp, um, I remember, <laughs> uh, who was in high school, was dominating in Indiana High School. And um, that's when I said, you know, if I'm ever going to really try to be an on-air sportscaster, I need I just need to break off from Channel 5 and leave and go do this. And 
uh, had met an assignment editor at ESPN. I went to ESPN as a production assistant, worked there for four years in Bristol, Connecticut, and then finally made the break um, on air, filled in at um, WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. I filled in on Thanksgiving or Christmas Day. I don't remember which one. And um, then uh, WATM in Johnstown, Pennsylvania hired me for one night. And I quit my job at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut. I packed up my car and put my entire apartment in that car, drove through a blizzard to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and filled in for one night. And I was their sportscaster for one night so that their sportscaster could go to cover the pirates at spring training. And uh, I didn't have a place to stay. And the news director at the time, his office was filled with stuffed animals, the animals, the stuffed animals that you would get in, you know, the claw game where you put a quarter in and you try to use the, the, the uh, claw to, to pick an animal. Sure. So it was filled with those. It was a little odd. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was a little strange. And um, I said, well, where, where do I stay? Uh, where, where am I staying tonight? And I didn't have a credit card back then. This was like 1990. Um, and he said, well, it's up to you. You know, you can ask any of the people that work here if, you know, you could sleep on their couch. And it didn't feel right to me. It just didn't feel like it, it was, I was very uncomfortable. And um, so I walked over across the street. There was a, either a red roof in or one of those motels. And I um, talked my way in, <laughs> said I was with the television station across the street. Do you have a room? They gave me a room and um, I stayed there for one night. Uh, after I worked, I, I went and slept for about four hours, got up at 4.35 in the morning and I made my drive all the way back to Chicago listening to the score because I could listen to it. You could get that signal through the mountains of Pennsylvania. My entire ride, I listened to the morning show. Uh, it was crazy. And I kept thinking this uh, one day, I'm going to work there one day. This is, this is my, my dream. This is it. And then I never got paid from the TV station in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. You never got paid? No, because they got the bill from the motel. And they said, well, you, uh, you basically used us there and um, therefore we had to pay for your room. So um, we'll call it even. <laughs> that was, oh gosh. And let me tell you, I was never so grateful to see Johnstown, Pennsylvania in my rearview mirror. You know, back in 1985, it's a little story. I turned down a job in Dallas because it wasn't a fit. And then I turned one down in Toronto six years later for pretty much the same reason. But who knows what kind of career you would have fashioned had you said yes to Cincinnati. Tell me a story I don't know when oh, saying no wow. turned out to perhaps be the best decision you ever made. Yeah, I remember um, I, I was at Chicagoland TV. So this was in um, the early 90s. And um, I was offered an interview and flown to Cincinnati. I went in, I had a great interview, really, really good interview. And I walked um, up and down the streets of Cincinnati and they, I knew they were going to offer me the job. And um, my agent said, do you see yourself there? Can you see yourself living in Cincinnati? And I was, you know, I was in Chicago at CLTV and I said, 
no, no, I, I just didn't get that feeling that I could see myself living in Cincinnati. And I, um, I didn't take the job in Cincinnati. And I think if I had taken that job, I may have had a uh, better opportunity maybe at national jobs. Um, but I stayed at CLTV and I kind of grinded it out. All right, this is what we're doing tonight. This happens every year. I started it last year because I get so many books given to me and sent to me by authors and, and uh, PR people, things like that. So if I don't read them or I got more than one copy of the book, they sit on my desk. Then I started doing a little bit of work for ESPN Regional, which did uh, college football games. Um, uh, I, I think I did a couple of stories for um, High School Scholastic Sports America on ESPN. Um, Chris Fowler was hosting it at the time, so I was actually a reporter, did a couple of those. Um, I had uh, Tom Waddle help me actually get uh, these regional sideline gigs for ESPN Regional. Um, I just kind of grinded it out. I, I got hired um, from CLTV. I got offered a job at um, WMAQ Radio on Bears coverage, uh, hosting a nighttime talk show, the Sports Huddle, and I just kept taking you know these kind of grinder jobs. Um, and um, I don't know. Eventually eventually, you know, your name kind of becomes ingrained more in Chicago and um, Channel 5 answered my call. You just mentioned radio, but I'm not sure how many people remember that you were a talk show host at WMVP. It was ESPN 1000 or whatever it was back in the day. Tell me a story I don't know. What was that experience like? Because here you were again, surrounded by a sea of testosterone. I loved it. I loved the guys I was working around. Um, I worked with Lou Canellis and huge on the huge show. I worked with Carmen DeFelco was like a young kid um, right out of, of school. And then I, I hosted the sports huddle on the weekends and it was great. I mean, once I started hosting the sports huddle, uh, I solo hosted and you got to show your personality. I would book guests and uh topics. We would talk topics. And I think that was really the turning point because once you could really show your knowledge um, and long form, uh, I think that was the key because on television, it's, you know, a minute 15 and half of that are sound bites from the athletes or the coaches that you're talking to. So really it's like 30 seconds, you know, of your knowledge. So um, yeah, I think that I loved it, but the story you don't know is the reason I left ESPN uh, radio in Chicago was I had just had my twins and I would bring them to the studio with me on Saturday mornings. And on the other side of the glass, they would be in a double stroller and literally in the breaks, I was running into the newsroom on the other side of the glass and feeding them and trying to rock the stroller if they were crying. Oh, and, if only we had a video of this. Oh my goodness. And then I'd <laughs> run back into the studio and they're like, Peggy, back on air in 10, nine, eight, you know, and I was like trying to get the pacifiers in both of their mouths. And, you know, I, I was going crazy. And that was, you know, 18 years ago when I said, I, I can't work two jobs anymore. I can't do this with two babies at home. And uh, eventually got hired at Channel 5. And uh, gosh, it was the week of 9-11. Yeah. You have won 12 Emmys in your career. 
but the first one kind of set a tone for you, didn't it? Yeah, I was working at ESPN and um, working on the brand new show, NFL Game Day. And Jimmy Roberts, uh, many people know him now from NBC's golf coverage. Jimmy Roberts was uh, one of our reporters at ESPN and I was an associate producer. And um, one of our jobs was, you know, you had to come up with the um, stories um, to air on NFL Game Day. And I was sitting at home in my apartment in New Britain, Connecticut, and uh, watching the Sally Jesse Raphael show. And um, she had the story of Kathleen Beatty. And Kathleen was uh, the wife of a football player. Her husband played for the Miami Dolphins. And um, Kathleen was... Uh, one of the co-sponsors of the first anti-stalking law uh, in Los Angeles, in California. And um, she co-wrote it with um, the actress from, I want to say it was my sister, Sam. And um, this woman, I believe, um, had been stalked for years. And um, uh, I I think she ended up losing her life. I, I could be wrong to that, to the stalker. Anyways, Kathleen Beatty uh, was on this talk show talking about why um, she was behind the anti-stalking law. And as it turned out, her husband, Greg Beatty at the time, was a tight end for the Miami Dolphins. And he would leave for training camp, um, like every football player does, um, you know, spring into the summer. And she would stay home um, uh, with the babies and uh, she would stay home um, and take care of the house. Well, she uh, started having this guy was stalking her and, um, you know, she noticed uh, things like she'd order a pizza and the pizza delivery guy would be this guy that she uh, was on the high school track team from her high school days in, um, in California. And um, then she'd run into him, you know, in a grocery store. Uh, Then she would see him, you know, around the corner. And so she shared it with her mom that she kept running into this guy and that it was kind of giving her a little creepy feeling. So one day her husband leaves for training camp and now, um, you know, he's going to be gone for a month or so. And uh, Kathleen walks into her home and, um, walks in and back then, you know, you had a uh, answering machine and she hit the answering machine um, to listen to her messages. And while she's, you know, putting her keys down and her purse down, she's playing the answering machine and she just has this feeling that somebody else is there. And she turns around and there is this high school classmate of hers and he has a knife and he says, you're coming with me. And he pulls the drapes and she just starts talking nervously to him, trying to, you know, well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he wants to kidnap her and he wants, you know, he's obsessed with her. And uh, she was a very pretty, long blonde hair, cheerleader, um, super cute. And, um, she makes her way to the kitchen and, um, you know, he's like, no, we're going out the front door. And she said, oh, no, no, no. I think we should go out the back door. You know, we could take my husband, Greg's sports car, if you want. And he said, okay, um, you know, I'm taking you up to the mountains in California. And so she thought, okay. And then the phone rings and she answers the phone and he's like, 
don't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone. She answers it anyways. She said, I have to answer the phone. If I don't answer the phone, you know, people are going to know something's wrong. I'm always home at this time. He lets her answer the phone. It's her mom. Kathleen, how are you? What are you doing calling me? I don't want to talk to you right now. I've told you before, stop calling. Kathleen, what's wrong? I told you before, this is not going to happen. So please stop calling me. Oh my gosh, Kathleen, something's wrong, isn't it? Is it him? Is he there? Yes. Yes. I told you this before. Yes. That type of conversation. Her mother hangs up, calls 911. So Kathleen is just stalling with the, the, her, her kidnapper, basically. And um, after who knows how many minutes, they go into the attached garage to get in the car. Um, and all Kathleen can hope for is that her mom had called the police. And she doesn't know because all the drapes are drawn in the house. So they go into the attached garage. She presses the garage door opener, gives him the keys to the car, and as she tosses him the keys, she turns and she can see over the hedges her father's face with police. And she takes off and just makes a beeline for the hedges. And being a track star in high school, she was a very good athlete. She ran and she dove over the hedges and they reached over, pulled her over, the kidnapper closes the garage door and now they have a barricade situation for 12 hours. And he finally gave up and ended up going to jail um, for attempted kidnapping. Uh, but there, there weren't, the laws back then were kidnapping, not stalking. And so Kathleen became one of the um, driving forces behind the first anti-stalking law in California. I pitched the story to Jimmy Roberts. He loves it. How do we make this story into a football story? This is, you know, back on a day when the stories were all X's and O's. And, you know, we came up with, here's a big six foot, seven inch football player who makes a living hitting guys and protecting his quarterback. And he can't protect his wife. And thus began our story of the stalker, Kathleen Beatty. And we won our first Emmy. I was the associate producer on it. It was a national Emmy. And a few years later, I was working the 1992 Olympics and Bob Costas uh, walked by me. I introduced myself and he said, Peggy, I remember you. You did the Greg Beatty story. You were Jimmy Roberts producer. And yeah, the rest was history. So that was, you know, how I just realized that a good story told the right way, you know, doesn't have to always be X's and O's. Let's fast forward. You go into, we're going to call this either semi or mostly retirement in 2016, but then you reemerge with a podcast only. This one involves a family member and it's called The Sportscaster and Her Son. So tell me a story I don't know how you convinced him to do this with you. My son, Jason, wanted to go into sports broadcasting. He was writing already since his freshman year in high school covering sports, covering uh, White Sox baseball. And um, my vision was I need to get him some experience. And um, I had, was already semi-retired, but I was itching. I wanted to do something. I approached him about doing a podcast, but at the time he thought podcasts were only for old people, which um, as you know, the last couple of years has showed that's just not the case. And um, I would ask him and he'd 
say no. And I would ask him and he would say no. And then after about six months, he agreed. And reluctantly, he agreed. Okay, so typically with the podcast, we always say we don't get along, but we both share a passion for sports. And Jason, I have to say that in the last almost two years now that we have been doing the podcast together, um, it really has brought us together in a different kind of way. And uh, you've matured, I've mellowed, uh, we get along great, and we get to talk about not only sports, but lots of other things as well. Would you agree? No, I totally do agree with that. I'd say the only like little snag when I'm away at school sometimes is waking up a little earlier than I normally would, but I really do enjoy it. And it's kind of nice being able to uh, be away from school and take a little break. We started um, this podcast. I asked friends for ideas for a name and Seattle Lewis at Channel 5 came up with the sportscaster and her son. And I just kind of use my Rolodex of um, people I've met over the years as guests. And it really does bridge the gap between the generations. My son and I have a phenomenal relationship right now. Um, We were always butting heads before. We were very similar. And truly talking sports was our common ground. And now we do it for the podcast. And we're having having a blast doing it. And and I got to tell you, I really like the fact that He's the brains now, and I just kind of drive the show. I ask this final question of all of my guests. If not for sportscasting, what would you have been? Oh, gosh. Oh, I probably would have been. I double majored in radio, television, and athletic coaching because I thought I would coach. I would either be a coach or I would be an actress. I know I wouldn't be a stand-up comedian because my mother would have killed me. Um <laughs> I, I think I probably would have been in, in acting some way, some form. Yeah, I think I probably would have gone into something like acting. I think you made the right choice. Thank you, Peggy Kaczynski, for telling me a story. I don't know. My thanks to NBC5 in Chicago, WGN-TV, ESPN, and the Sportscaster and Her Son podcast. And big thanks to T.J. Reeves, who works diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better. And T.T. Shinkin, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.